Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I want to talk about something that happened a few days ago. I've been off the show, been doing filling in in the mornings, and so I haven't had a chance to catch up with John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer. Um, lots of stuff going on in the city. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for doing this tonight. It's good to be with you, Scott. I never got a chance to talk to you about something that came up at council or one of the committees. I don't know which one it was a few days ago. And it was an idea that I believe it was Maureen Wilson, Councillor Maureen Wilson that brought it forward, seeking, asking staff to see if they can find revenue streams because we have a cash crunch in the city. And on its face, I think that sounds okay. Yeah. Let's see if we can find some revenue streams. But when you heard that, what does that mean to you? Well, it, and sort of what it meant to me was, surely to God, they're already combing every possible revenue stream there is. Uh, and so I was a little surprised at that aspect of it because I, you know, with a, we've got a director of finance, Mike Zagarek, who seems to be pretty much on the ball. And I, I can't imagine there'd be any loose change lying around hmm. that, uh, that we hadn't applied for. But then today they they had a, a general issues committee meeting. It was almost entirely given over to the homeless uh, and the encampment issue. And they were talking about, um, you know, getting more money, obviously, from the senior governments because Hamilton's getting into the $100 million a year range now for its uh, housing and homeless budget. So it's getting to be a big number. And uh, it was interesting because staff told council that uh, because... Uh, of the reporting requirements. In other words, if staff wants to spend a large amount of money, they obviously have to put it through council. And they're saying that opportunities came up from the senior governments where there could have been money for housing and, and we weren't able to take advantage of it because we weren't nimble enough, um, you know, with our process of having to come back to council and get permission. So, so today they proposed and it was passed that uh, the city will will sort of give them conditionally $10 million a year for the next three years so that they have that pool of money. And then if an opportunity comes up, uh, a housing opportunity, uh, they can move quickly and they can commit us. These are these are opportunities where where the scene where we would have to contribute something in order to qualify for federal or provincial money. So there you go. So, I mean, staff actually saying, yeah, we missed out on some opportunities. And I, I frankly, I was shocked. Uh, yeah. My, and, and I hope that they can find more of those. I mean, that if, if we can find benign revenue streams that don't tap into the public, great. I mean, do those. My concern is, and maybe I'm listening too much to what's happening just down the road, but you've got Olivia Chow talking about land transfer tax and commercial parking taxes and vacant home tax and property tax increase and a municipal sales tax, some of those I don't have a problem with, honestly, but some of those more property tax, uh, municipal sales tax, this I'm praying is not what was back of mind when revenue streams are being talked about. Let's find new taxes for people. Well, uh, there was quite a discussion about it in your morning show today, and it, it sounds like that's exactly what Chow is thinking about is uh, the, the, um, the sales tax would raise way more money than any of those other issues. But my my sense is uh, they have to go to the province to get permission for a, uh, a city sales tax. And my sense is that uh, Doug Ford is not interested in, in allowing that. So 
the chances of us downstream here in Hamilton getting a chance, not that it's been discussed here, but I, I just think that would really be a major step uh, backwards. I, I've been arguing, and I, I know it's difficult when you hear staff talking about the problems they're having trying to come up with money for just our local homeless and uh, shelter system. It still strikes me, though, that we just keep adding staff. We just keep adding costs. Yep. There, there's never you never hear anybody uh, at the managerial level at the city talking about efficiencies or can we use technology or AI or is there anything we can do? Like for instance, today, uh, council did approve a, a number of emergency measures to keep the shelter and uh, encampment system going. But, you know, one of the things they did approve, or at least give a nod to, was next year it looks like they're going to have to hire five more people. So there's five people. We hired, you know, this uh, current council uh, allowed a budget to go by that had something in the excess of 200 new hires, the biggest number of new hires we've ever had. I think they they kind of took advantage of this green council. But, you know, we just keep adding staff and, and you just don't hear anybody talking about any kind of re-engineering or anything that, that might allow us to get the same for the same. It's always, if we do anything different, we have to add staff. And of course, those are costs that never go away. They only get bigger. Well, no, and we just saw that. We just, so we had the, the raises for the non-union staff and then the unions all said, well, wait, if they got it, we want it. And so we've got now what, 13% for the QP people and the HSR people are waiting and they've said, we're not taking less than what they got. That's all added on to our, our taxes. I, I, as soon as I heard this thing with that Olivia Chow mentioned, I thought, okay, someone here is going to say, mm, municipal sales tax. That sounds tasty. And I truly believe that the first counselor around council in Hamilton that mentions the three words municipal sales tax should immediately have to put their name in for a recall election. You want to bring that up? We're saying enough, enough, and, and somebody will, and I'm being half facetious, but somebody will, somebody is going to propose the idea or at least throw it out there because, you know, it's a tax and really who does a tax harm? Only the rich, right? John, only the rich are harmed by a tax. Well, it just, uh, you know, it ultimately dries up costs everywhere, but, uh, you know, I'm being if, facetious. If it hurts everybody. Pay, if we have to pay for things, I'm, I can accept that. But what I can't accept is a culture that never tries to right. find some kind of efficiencies. You're absolutely right, John. You are absolutely on board. I, I've been in this, taking this position forever that I know a government is not the same as a household, but it's similar enough that there are some things you can follow as far as guidelines. And when you don't have money, you don't keep adding stuff. You have to make some hard decisions. This is not new though. Why, why have why has council typically traditionally been so loath to make those tough decisions? That's why they run, isn't it? To make those tough decisions. Well, they are, uh, but you know, the pressure, uh, uh, Make no mistake, a, a local politician is probably under the the worst pressure of any politician. If you if you try to get in to see your federal or your provincial member now, you can't even get in the office. Uh, the doors are locked, and uh, that's largely because partly because of social media threats of violence. Public has become very ugly. But bottom line is, uh, those people. 
um, have a little bit of a buffer between themselves and the public. And I guess the other issue is that, you know, when uh, I, I can't think of the last time that I had to go to an MP or an MPP for anything, uh, you know, the, the, the government services, whether it's a passport or pay your taxes that, you know, you just don't have that need to be in touch. But when you're a local politician, um, you're getting it all over the place. You're getting it on uh, issues like garbage and potholes. And uh, so, you know, they they become a bit gun shy and they do get um, a tremendous amount of incoming uh, on social media, telephone, uh, nasty comments uh, on online. So it, it is a tougher job. And, and I think that makes them more sensitive to uh, the public will and and less willing to maybe be as bold as we would sometimes like them to be. How do you think, uh, how do you, honestly, how do you think a city councillor would do if they were bold? If somebody stood up and said, I am actually in favour of every department in the city cutting their budget by 3% this year, how do you think that would play with the public? Well, I think the public would love it and, until they see what the 3% would mean. But then we're back into this other dance of uh, if you want to add anything, it means adding staff. And if you want to subtract anything, which service would you like to see reduced or eliminated? So it's, it's that same culture of uh, just not being able, I guess, to think outside the box. And, you know, we're in a situation here where we're going to get a new CAO in Hamilton, a new city manager. And, uh, you know, you'd like to think that maybe this council, given the challenges that it has, that they, they'd be looking for somebody who really is a forward thinking, outside the box kind of uh, executive. <clears throat> but the problem is, I'm not sure that skill set exists at the municipal level. I don't know where you'd find somebody like mm. that. And the last time we had a bold city manager we got to go back 20 odd years to Doug Lychak and he pissed everybody off so much that they fired him. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he made cuts. He made tough cuts. He, he identified people that were dead wood and, but some of them had friends on council. And uh, at the end of the day, he ended up being the casualty. So there's, it's not without risk bringing in a, an innovator. Well, and will it be all of council that has a say in this? Because don't the strong mayor powers that Andrea Horvath has now, don't they give her the right to choose her person if she so chooses to? That's right. She does have that power now. We haven't actually seen it identified yet in, um, you know, in a municipality, at least not that I've heard of. But yes, she gets the final say. And I guess the question with Andrea uh, she was pretty good today, by the way. She's uh, somebody, uh, a delegate was in there hammering away and saying staff had misled them on the housing issue and staff weren't telling the truth. And she stuck up for her her staff pretty good. And, and she made the point that she used to be an activist. The best thing she could do is hire somebody that maybe doesn't have her philosophy. Uh, you know, somebody that's a hard nosed, more of a business type person. I don't know if that can happen or not, but uh, she has that opportunity and I hope she uses it wisely. We only have a few minutes left and, and I, this is not one we're going to solve in the next few minutes, but I just wanted to touch on it. And, and you referred to it in the Bay Observer today or yesterday, and it's, it's the ongoing story right now about encampments and, and tiny homes and all that, all the stuff that goes along with it. Do you think that 
there's ever going to be a situation now that council is going to be able to deal with this in a way that satisfies people? Or is this going to be the perpetual somebody is upset at what's going on situation? I think as long as uh, we continue to put tents in parks, I don't think the problem will be solved. Uh, John Paul Danko today, he said, okay, with all this extra money that you're asking us for, that you're going to get, um, well, can can I at least say to my constituents, the tents are now going to go away because we spent this extra money. And uh, and the staff uh, director was quite frank. She said, no, it, it'll help. It'll, you know, sort of move us in the right direction. But uh, even spending $100 million a year on housing and homeless is... Uh, not going to make the tents leave the parks. My view is we have to find a site that's not a park, and, and I think we have to consolidate uh, everything into one large location where we can have proper sanitation facilities, where social workers and addiction workers know where to go. And, and at that point, if we could provide that kind of a facility, then I think we would be entitled to, to then say, if anybody sets up a tent in the park, it's over. Uh, you know, you got to be out of there in 24 hours. The public simply does not want these tents in parks. And it's, uh, you know, they talk about compassion, but th this is, you know, the, the important thing is to provide shelter and services. And if we can do that without using the, the uh, you know, the, the parks, uh, I think that's the way we need to go. It is, uh, I, we'll, we'll talk about this another time because it, this is the one that is such a, it's such a mess as far as trying to come up with a solution. There's no question. And, and you know, as, as much as people are hammering on council, and in some cases with good reason, no one is suggesting this is an easy one to solve. No, no one is saying it's an easy one. Um, it's a tough one, for it, it sure. Is, it is for sure. Uh, that is John Best. He's the publisher of the Bay Observer. We'll be talking to John again soon. Uh, John, thanks for taking the time to do this. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Pierre Polyev for weeks now, months, has been seemingly in full campaign mode and we may be still 18 months, almost two years away from an election. I want to bring in Dr. Lori Turnbull. She's a professor in the Faculty of Management with Dalhousie University. Uh, thank you for the time today. Anytime. Thank you for having me. Is this unprecedented that a leader of a federal, uh, federal political party would be in this position going seemingly full out campaigning this far in advance in Canada? Well, I mean, I think there's this sense that he has such momentum in the polls right now and we really don't know when the next election will be. Like we think it could be in 2025, which would be like, you know, about two years from now in October of 25 is when it's scheduled, but they don't have to wait till that long. And so I think, um, He's probably wanting to be prepared. He's probably wanting to, you know, whenever we get into that mode, we have a minority government. It could happen any time that the House is sitting. And so if it does happen, he wants to be kind of in election ready mode. And I mean, you could probably look back to 2013 when Justin Trudeau became the leader of the party. We knew that the election probably would be 2015, but he was pretty, you know, he was in campaign mode during that time because there was, again, there was momentum behind him. There was a sense that the next election was going to be a change one. 
The one difference I think maybe from that time is that, um, yes, it's a minority government right now, but there seems to be no evidence that Jagmeet Singh is about to pull the pin on this. And when you look at some of the NDP numbers, you might want to see why they would be unlikely to do this. There doesn't seem to be any way we're going to have that snap election or that shortened election. I And I know what you're saying, and I agree. Um, the NDP hasn't really let any light, any space between them and the Liberals, it seems to me. Uh, they've shown no signs that they're thinking about going to election. That said, it seems to me now that Singh has to start thinking about what life could be like for him if Pierre Polyev wins the next election. And he's looking at the polls, and his numbers, like Singh's numbers, aren't looking any better. At the same time, I think they're, they might be thinking, look, like how can we show that we actually do have the government's feet to the fire. How can we show value added? They're putting a lot of pressure on the government or they're going to be putting a lot of pressure on the government to respond to the housing crisis in the next fiscal fiscal update, which would be a confidence motion because it's a, mm. it's a money bill. So I think for them, like there's an opportunity for them if they want to start thinking about like how to manage the next number of months, years, again, what things could be like if Pierre Pauly have won. Do they want to risk that? Um, you know, and, and what if he wins a majority? What the heck is going to happen to the NDP's leverage then? And so they might decide, you know, like come a few months time, what things might look like for them mm. if they if they want to get a little bit more aggressive in the House. Well, and there's one other thing too. And look, I, 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 I put anything to do with social media um, with a platter of salt or whatever you say. Cause, I mean, Me too. Was, nonetheless, any time, and, and Jagmeet Singh has been especially lately very active and almost aggressive with the conservatives and the liberals taking shots and with every time he tweets the litany of responses comes in well you're propping the liberals up how are you possibly taking shots at a government that you're supporting it seems like he's in a really tough spot to try and take shots at a government that everyone's blaming him for being the one if you're against them for being the one propping them up well that's it and i think um you know singh has at different times been the most personally popular of the leaders, but he's never been able to translate that into more seats, right? Like, and, and I mean, you know, he hasn't ran that many elections as leader, but still, it, like, even the by-elections, nothing there. Like, he didn't, He, I think he got one more seat in the election in 2021. Like, he's just sort of not able to to just translate this into more representation in the House. And as you say, people are going to say, look, you know, why should we vote for you when we can vote for the Liberals? And that's going to be his other problem, mm -hmm. is that when people start worrying about if you're a progressive voter or if you just don't like Pierre Polyev or some mix of that and you don't want him to win in the next election, Singh's problem is going to be the strategic voter that says, I'm not risking a vote for the NDP. I'm going to vote for the Liberals because they've got a better shot of winning. And then he starts to see his vote drop even more than it has already. I must say that uh, while I, you're absolutely right, of course, uh, that there is no guarantee of an election until 2025, there, if you look at Jagmeet Singh's Twitter feed the last week or two, boy, there's a lot more on there that sort of looks like campaigning. And I don't know if there's anything to read into that because obviously he's the one who holds the fulcrum here. It, it looks more like campaign tweets than regular tweets. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, at this point, I think we can feel like you're looking at the polls and it's poll after poll that has shown that the liberals are far behind. So there's this sense that, OK, the next time we do have an election, are we looking at a change election? 
is it possible that the liberals will turn this around? And, you know, it's, it, again, the more time that goes by, the more polls seem to reflect one another that there is a significant difference between the liberals and the conservatives, and it's been sustained for a period of time. Then I think that the parties can't help it but start thinking in, in campaign mode and start looking to the next step. And I think Singh wants to, as Polyev does, he wants to appear campaign ready. He wants to be campaign ready. He doesn't want to be caught off guard. And I think um, the more the opposition leaders are in campaign mode, the more this becomes a sense of, um, you know, a kind of looking forward to the next election, the more, in my view, a change momentum could build, uh, you know, and then it's kind of taking advantage, I think, of where the liberals are in the polls. Uh, and you mentioned the polls. I just pulled up the uh, from uh, 338 Canada, their rundown of the different polls. It's a fascinating thing. Angus Reid, big lead for the Conservatives. Abacus, big lead for the Conservatives. Main Street, big lead for the Conservatives. Leger, big lead for the Conservatives. Nanos, almost even with the Conservatives yeah. and Liberals. I guess if you're the Liberals right now, you're going, oh, Nick Nanos, thank you. Please be right. Please make all these other ones wrong. And you're the only one who's found something in here that's a little sliver of good news because he's the only one that's showing this not right now as a runaway. That's it. And so I guess, you know, I, I, I saw that poll too and I thought, hmm, you know, like that's the outlier. That's, again, absolutely a, a source of hope for the, for the Liberals at this point. But the question will be, you know, does that poll, um, you know, stand over time and what does that really mean? And are the Liberals able, I, th I think, to kind of, is that a sign that they're turning something around? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, as we get closer, I think, um, you know, the key for the Liberals is going to be, can you make people afraid of Polyev? Like, are you going to start hitting him with negative ads? Are you starting to, are you going to start telling people who Pierre Polyev is? Because there's, there's enough kind of voter fatigue with the liberals. There's enough negatives posted for Justin Trudeau right now that they've got to come up with a strategy. I think that makes people think Polyev is too dangerous to go with. Like they've got, and I mean, the liberals are experts at making people afraid of the conservatives. They do it all the time, but are they going to do it here? And I think that will be the key for them to be able to salvage anything by the time the next election comes along. Oh, come on. They're not experts. It's sunny ways always. <laughs> yes. <laughs> is, yeah. is there a yeah, risk? We'll is there a risk though? So you're Pierre Polyev right now and you have decided clearly the party has decided we're going full campaigning here. We're going to spend as much time as we have before the election going after any time a coach, let's say, in sports is in a position for long enough, you start to hear the same words over and over. There becomes almost a fatigue with that coach's voice. Is there a risk that, yeah, you know what, you might be able to build a big lead in 2023, but people become tired of hearing about your comments by 2025 and that all goes away? Yeah, like you kind of run out of steam, you run out of excitement because people are sort of used to the messaging by now. I think, you know, like that, that's a risk. Um, but I also think that the conservatives have done some smart things like that. You can see this sort of physical um, makeover of Pierre Polyev and that he's showing up physically like he's he's dressing differently. He's lost the glasses. He's his his voice sounds a bit softer when he talks to the press. They've got these ads out that his wife is describing him as a family man. And they've got the pictures of them, their family and that kind of thing. They are doing the image building and the rebranding of the leader much earlier than they did it with uh, Aaron O'Toole. And so it doesn't come across as a total shock to everybody. It doesn't look like he's just showing up and now he's put on a totally different personality and look for the election campaign. They're working this over a period of time. And so I think, you know, if if there is, um, I don't know if there's another year till the next election, or there's another two years for the next election, we'll probably see them switch course a few times. Like at this point, 
Polyev is talking to Canadians directly. There is no parliament meeting at this point. He doesn't have to deal directly with the other politicians. But I think once the House meets, for example, it's going to be interesting to see how Polyev switches to that side of him that is that real fighter in the House, right? Yeah. Like, and how he just goes after the prime minister, like goes for the jugular. Is he going to go back to that, I wonder? Or are we going to see more of this kind of a little bit softer, um, softer side of him? Well, and the one other thing too is so much of his message, so almost all of his message has been not anti-liberal. It's been anti-Trudeau. Trudeau has been the target. Yeah. What happens, and I don't think anyone expects it yet, but there's been rumblings. What happens if Trudeau decides to take the walk in the snow in the middle, even if it's in the middle of summer when there's no snow and it's Christian Freeland or someone else, does that screw up the whole message for the conservatives? Because everything has been about Justin Trudeau. I know what you're saying, and I totally agree. Uh, they have absolutely put their eggs in that basket because they know that Trudeau's brand is where a lot of the frustration is, and they are taking advantage of that. They can see that Trudeau is as polarizing as Polyev, frankly, and maybe even more so now, and so they're taking advantage of that. However, I think if Trudeau decided to walk sometime between now and the next election, um, you know, which I can see them, like if, if that's what he wants to do, and I don't, I don't actually think he does, but if he did, um, you know, they could work that out with the NDP where they say, look, we're going to, you know, we're going to take this to 2025. We're going to have a leadership convention. We'll give you guys what you want. And you guys keep, we, you guys prop this up for two years. That would give the new leader time to get their feet under them kind of thing. What you're going to see then is the conservative, like traditional, they will dust off their define a leader before anybody else can machine and we'll see i think we'll see the same type of type of tactics that we saw from stephen harper when they defined dion when they defined ignatiev it will be a really negative hit job on the new leader as soon as they get as soon as they take office yeah it's just you know laurie you're so so negative everyone's just gonna hit everyone else. it's, gonna, it's, <laughs> it's no I'm, I'm kidding of course this is politics it's uh there is no politics without blood sport uh great uh, great chat dr laurie turnbull from dalhousie university love having you on thanks for doing this today thank you so much take care you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml I want to talk about something that i think is a bit of a bizarre story, but it, it may explain a few things about what's going on in the country right now. And that is there are analysts now who say we may be undercounting how many people are in this country by as many as a million people, a million people, which seems to me to be incredible when you consider we're not the, one of the biggest numeric countries in the world. There's only 40 million of us. It seems like losing or not having a count of a million people would be noticeable. How do you, how do we not know potentially about a million people who might be in this country? Moisha Launder is a senior economics lecturer with Concordia University. He joins me now. Thank you for the time tonight. Hello. I want to talk NFL football too, though. Hey, <laughs> stick around, stick around after. We'll bring you on for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, this seems if, you know, if, if someone said, oh, you know what, there's 20,000 people or 50,000 people that we're really not sure where they are or where they sort of surprised us. Yeah. I, okay, fine. It's a country, you know, but a million is a lot of people. It is Canada's population allegedly is around 40 million. So we're talking about two and a half percent of the population might be invisible. So you're right. It's not an insignificant sum. We might view that as an insignificant sum if we're talking about like loose change in the couch, right? Like two and a half percent of your money goes missing. You might not notice that, but it, it is pretty substantial when we're talking about actual human beings. Yeah, but I haven't even done the math. But I mean, what if you had a uh, if you had a million dollars in your bank account, 
that's $25,000. If my math is okay, you're not, you're going to notice if $25,000 all of a sudden goes missing. And so how do we get here? How, how have we suddenly discovered or think we've discovered that there are a million more people in this country than we thought? How, how have they not been counted? Well, it's partly because we're not regularly counting people, right? So because we only do a census every once in a while, then between censuses, we're extrapolating what's going on. And it's not to say that the border is leaky and that we have a bunch of illegal immigrants coming in. It's just that uh, that data is not updated in real time for obvious reasons, right? You can't track deaths and births in real time uh, and aggregate that into a single number. So it's not like a clock that's going to sit above parliament. And so, you know, you start to realize that, okay, between that census and this census, it, it is possible that there's a significant number of people that have gone missing uh, based on just the way that we forecast or extrapolate out uh, what happened since the last time we officially counted. One of the suggestions that has been offered as to where this has come from is that it includes individuals residing in the country without a visa, because when people's visas expire, they don't necessarily have to leave. Some of them can apply for extensions or permanent residence or whatever else. But Again, uh, I can't imagine that we have a million people here on expiring visas. At some point, some of them have to go home. Not every, not everybody who comes here is going to stay. So uh, assuming there's a, a number of them like that, again, where do, where do we find the rest? Births maybe that we don't know about, although you'd like to think that we categorize those or count those at a hospital. Where do they all come from? Yeah, and I don't, and I don't so, sorry. And I just want to clarify when I say, where do they all come from? I'm not talking about countries as immigrants, although that may be it. I'm just saying like the numbers, how do they add up like this? Yeah. They all come from Toronto. Um, <laughs> yeah. The, the problem is that it's a bunch of small things that aggregate up to a million, right? So you're right that we can start pointing at all kinds of areas where we could say, all right, uh, you know, the local county hospital might not be uh, relaying its information fast enough for the government to be able to keep track of that, right? The number of people that are dying might not be uh, processed either, right? So you can have small numbers here and there uh, and then add on, like you said, expiring visas and maybe people that are sneaking across the border. Remember, that was an issue, uh, people coming across into Quebec um, and coming across, you know, add up 10,000 here, 10,000 there. Uh, it can add up to a million people, but it's it's not one particular source and it's not one particular city either where the million might be missing. So the number is a mystery. Uh, you know, you've given some good examples or good explanations for where these numbers may have grown from, but then we get into the practicality of, all right, so if there are a million unaccounted for people in this country, it does potentially help explain some of the real challenges that we're having, especially in housing. If there's a, if governments are banking on a certain number of people being here and we're off by two and a half percent, that, that would explain in some cases why, as I say, housing as an example is suddenly such a challenge. You're absolutely right. Housing could be a challenge. And remember that, you know, there's not one centralized database outside of the census where all of this information is, right? So it's entirely possible that different government departments might have different counts as to what they think are going on and they might not be sharing that information not because they're you know keeping it a state secret or something it's just that the the designs of some of these IT systems don't help 
process things uh, e equally or, or easily, right? Anybody who's been to a bank will realize, why do I have to enter this information again to open a bank account when I've been banking with you for 20 years? It's because the IT uh, doesn't necessarily communicate with each other. So it's entirely possible then that it's not just a housing issue. It could be a tax issue. It could be a benefits issue. It could be um, a schooling issue, a healthcare system, anything that relies on forecasting. How many people do we actually know are here in the area? If you're off, uh, that starts to have consequences. And so some of the unexplainable uh, phenomena that we see in this country might be explained by, oh, we just don't have the right people uh, or the right number of people in our in our calculations. You just raised something that I don't know how I had not thought of this before, but I'm glad you did. If you are not known to the government, almost certainly you are not paying taxes because if you're paying taxes, you're in the system somehow. So this could be a million people who are not paying into the system because nobody knows they're here. It could be, but it could be that some of them are paying into the system, but they're not being counted because they're missing from other parts of the system, right? So, uh, you know, let, let's not necessarily jump to the conclusion that all 1 million are, are deadbeats, right? Like I said, if it's an issue of uh, births that aren't being recorded properly, well, they wouldn't be paying taxes anyway, right? Um, so there's all kinds of potential issues there. One other potential issue is that when we talk about the the well-being of our country, we usually look at the standard measure, which every country uses, which is GDP per capita per person. What if we don't have the right number of people? If the number that we're dividing by is too small, then the fraction is too big. And so we might actually be overstating our standard of living here because we're missing those million people in that calculation too then. And that has implications as well in terms of how we relate uh, financial markets, Canadian dollar exchange rate and things like that uh, if our economy is not being presented properly. Explain that. Okay. So let's say that the GDP per capita is off. Explain other than it being depressing to think that all of a sudden we're, our standard of living is a lot lower, which maybe some people say, well, of course it is. We all recognize that these days, but what are the repercussions, what are the real life repercussions of that? Well, um, let, let's create a doomsday sort of scenario here. Let's say then that there are a million people that we've miscounted. GDP is correctly counted. And as a result, GDP per capita is overstated. Uh, if you're an international financier looking to invest your money, you might look at Canada and the US and say, yeah, they have comparable GDPs per person. But now that you're aware of this, you might say, oh, I didn't realize that Canada is that much lower. All of a sudden, then your investment dollars might start steering towards the US away from Canada. That could put downward pressure on the Canadian dollar, even more so than we've been seeing recently. And when the Canadian dollar falls, while that might be good for exporters, it's actually a source of inflation. And so this could trigger then the need to increase interest rates, uh, like we need another one of those these days. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it's something where um, that could have implications if the rest of the world is uh, made aware that, hey, the numbers that we've been presenting to you are wrong. Is this the kind of thing that you look at and if they can figure it out, because uh, again, I, I, you're right. It's how do you count all the, how do you figure it out now to count them? If you, if you didn't know they were there to begin with, how do you find them then to count them? It seems like it's a chicken or a chicken and the egg or a dog chasing its tail or whatever cliche you want to use. But if this somehow could be counted and we find out that actually we do have way more people here than we thought, what should a government do about that? Should it start to say we've got a lower immigration because we've already got way more than we figured of people in this country? Or do you like, what, what, what do you do if you're a government and this suddenly comes on your table? 
Well, if you decide that you're going to reduce immigration as a result, that could potentially be a short-term benefit, but at a long-term cost, okay. right? Immigration is what keeps this country young, and it's what keeps the tax base young. Uh, that helps to finance the pension system, employment insurance, and there's a whole bunch of, of government programs that are financed by keeping us young. So immigration is a good thing. Uh, shutting that down or slowing it down could be a problem. The, the biggest issue is that you highlighted earlier that things like the housing market and a lot of municipal services uh, are not prepared for the influx of people that we've seen so far. And if we're undercounting it, then they're for sure not ready for it. So I, I think the bigger issue then is that federally, provincially, and municipally, there there has to be a, a better accounting of who exactly is here, where exactly are they in this country, and what exactly is it that they need or don't need, and what is it that they're contributing or not. And so I, I think it's a, a much bigger discussion uh, to, to make sure that not that we change necessarily our policy towards foreigners, but that we figure out how to incorporate them and keep track of them. And and I, I agree with you wholeheartedly about the idea of immigrants coming here and bringing great things to the country and contributing to the growth of the country and all those things. Uh, my suggestion was more about if all of a sudden we have been surprised by saying, oh, guess what? There's a million more here right now across this country, a million more people that we didn't know about. Should it be a short-term thing to say, we have got to slow immigration down for the next two or three years assuming this is almost like having a million people coming here that we didn't know about. And then we can resume it once we catch up and get, you know, housing caught up or get our feet back under us. Yep. You could do it as a short-term thing. I just don't know that I have the confidence in the government to do anything that's a short-term thing, right? <laughs> uh, I, I like to point out to people that income taxes were a short-term solution to the First World War. So, yes. you know, it's one of those things that once you put it in place, you have to realize that there's got to be a politician somewhere down the line who says, okay, we're going back to business as usual because we got a chance to catch up. Um, immigration is one of those uh, lightning rods that I don't know that there's a politician out there these days that wants to say, okay, let's go back to business as usual. So uh, if we start to restrict it now, are we going to create a, an environment where it's almost impossible to undo at a later point? Okay. Uh, f fair argument. What about with the things that you've said and um, about why these people have gone missing from the count? Do we need to change our system to make sure they're included in the count? Or, or ultimately, you know what, if we're 100,000 off or 500,000 off down the road, who, it really doesn't make a difference. Do we need to fix this? It depends on what it is that we're exactly missing out on, right? So if we're missing a million people and they are all not paying taxes, then absolutely we need to fix that. If we're missing out on a million people, but they are at least contributing to the economy and paying their fair share, then all right, um, they're missing. The The problem is that to, to replace... Um, whatever, you know, IT systems are in place in the various government departments to make sure that they're talking to each other and they have a proper picture of what's going on. Uh, I think we've seen in this country that even basic things like creating you know, gun registries uh, turn into financial disasters, regardless of the rights or wrong of, of creating that sort of database. It, it's not so easy as just uh, open up a laptop and start, you know, counting heads. So uh, it, it's the type of thing that it, it's probably a lot costlier than you might think. And so the solution is maybe not just, you know, onboarding them and saying, all right, let, let's go on now. Um, it, it's a matter of uh, as government grows, there's a huge amount of duplication and disconnect that, that leads to these types of problems. 
All right. Uh, one more thing. We only have a few seconds here. Um, you're a, an economics lecturer, not a security lecturer, so I grant you that. But um, is there a security thought on this one that if we don't know who's in our country, that is concerning? Or do we look at that and say, yeah, you know what, really not that big a deal. In all likelihood, everyone's fine. We have all kinds of security issues within this country. This is one of them. But, you know, even when people are allowed into this country, you don't necessarily know what happens to them once they get in the country, right? We don't have a surveillance economy where we keep that close of tabs on Thank people. Goodness. So um, I, I don't know that this is necessarily uh, the problem that has to keep us up at night. But if you're looking for other security issues, uh, you know, we have an Arctic where people aren't living for the most part. And, and that's a security issue. So on the one hand, uh, people in the country that we don't know of is a problem, but we also have huge tracts of land uh, where people aren't living it. And that's a problem too, because we don't know who's on that land if we're not looking for them. It is. Uh, it's such a fascinating discussion. I, when I, when I first saw this story and I thought, okay, let's, let's, how many is a million people? Boy, it's a lot. Um, but you know what? There, explanation granted today. Uh, appreciate you doing that. Moisha Lander from Concordia University. Thank you for the time. Thanks for the explanation. My pleasure. Go Bills. <laughs> there you go. A lot of people with their thumbs up on that one. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are usually talking football, American variety, when the weather is cool and we're wearing a jacket and it's feeling crisp and those who like pumpkin spice are in their glory. Well, the pumpkin spice is back, but man, the temperatures are not American football-esque. And yet here we are. NFL season begins on Thursday night. Let me bring in Rick Zamperin, host of the fifth quarter, who, Rick, I am suggesting you expand your fifth quarter horizons, not just high cats, all NFL, every night of the week, a fifth quarter from now on. <laughs> uh, as long as there's no pumpkin spice, anything near me, <laughs> I am able to do that. Amen. Yes. Amen. Yes. Uh, let's, uh, we'll get into the whole pumpkin spice thing another day. Uh, yes. Anyway. NFL beginning. I can't even believe that uh, that we're talking about the NFL beginning already. It doesn't seem possible. But here we are, Thursday night, Detroit Lions and Kansas City Chiefs. We're going to get into a lot more stuff. But the NFL choosing Detroit as their opening night choice. I get Kansas City. What the heck is with the Detroit Lions? They get Thanksgiving and now they get opening night. Who Who has pictures of someone in the NFL office? Yeah, apparently Dan Campbell does, the head coach of the Detroit Lions. But listen, there there is, and I'm not sure if it's warranted at this point, but there's a lot of hype over the Detroit Lions. And I think it's the way that they played last season. And they played particularly well, I think above expectations in terms of you know the win-loss column. But at the end of the day, when you're ranking the elite teams in the NFL, the Detroit Lions do not come to mind. They would be towards the bottom of the list. Kansas City, absolutely. Defending champions. Patrick Mahomes and all the hype that goes along with him, you know, a great sports town. They won Super Bowls. That makes sense. Detroit, uh, not so much. But in saying that, there are actually some people picking the Lions to win this game. I'm not among them, but uh, let's see what this this incarnation of the Detroit Lions is able to achieve in 2023. I'm, I'm interested to see how they do. Yeah, th this is not going to be a, a segment where we just dump on the Detroit Lions. There's no, there's no point in that, but I just, I don't know that in my lifetime, there's been a, I mean, there've been moments when they've been okay. And when yep. Barry Sanders was there and, uh, and Megatron was there, it, it just, it seems like if there's ever a franchise that has been the perpetual disappointment, I think it would, they would be in the conversation. Absolutely. I mean, people are not necessarily losing their mind, but really excited 
about this team. And I think it's the way that, you know, I think they played much better last year than in years previous, but they were nine and eight last year. Wasn't that, you know, they were 13 and four or 14 and three. They were nowhere near a juggernaut, but I think just finally seeing a, a team like that finally come from out of the, the, the doldrums of the national football league for years. And you mentioned the two eras, Megatron and Barry Sanders. Apart from that, Detroit Lions fans have had very little to cheer about. 2023 might be different, but I don't know. They're in a pretty tough division. We'll see. All right. I use disappointment. I'm I'm loath to draw this next word in next to disappointment, but um, because my son will hunt me down and execute me. But uh the Buffalo <laughs> Bills, yes, you cannot be a Bills fan and not have experienced the regular and consistent hoof to the groin of disappointment that comes along. I mean, <laughs> they have had great lineups they've had great teams they've had great players and then last year they go into the playoffs and lay a complete egg against Cincinnati and now nobody is saying the Buffalo Bills are going anywhere this year I don't know that I would jump to the they've gone from being Super Bowl favorites to also Rans but they boy the the excitement the bloom on the rose whatever it seems to be gone for most people from this team who aren't diehard Bills fans I think if you're the Buffalo Bills I think you're kind of happy about that because not necessarily is the pressure off, but I think that adds maybe a little wee chip on your shoulder to say, all right, no one's talking about us. They're talking about, you know, the chiefs going back to back again, maybe the Eagles making another run, San Francisco, heck, maybe the jets, some people picking Aaron Rodgers and gang green to win the AFC East. I think that's all kind of ammunition or fuel to the fire for the bills. If, if I'm a bills fan, honest to God, I'm not, or I'm a member of the Buffalo Bills. I'm thinking, okay, yeah, hey, don't talk about the, don't talk about us. But when we, you know, start on Monday Night Football against the Jets and beat their butts, people will start talking about the Buffalo Bills again. I saw one per now. You know, pr- predictions are what's that old thing about? Predictions are like um, the orifice down in the lower end of your body. Everybody's got one. Um, I saw one predictor though, and this was not like a wild out there, you know, Bob's predictions. It was legitimate saying the bills, they're picking the bills third in the AFC East behind the jets and dolphins or dolphins and jets. I would find that shocking if that truly happened. Yeah. Listen, I mean, Buffalo to me is still the class of the AFC East, if not the AFC, you know, if, if Patrick Mahomes is, is healthy and if and if Joe Burrow is healthy, you know, KC and, and Cincinnati are probably right there with Buffalo. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, when you look at the Jets, they brought in a ton of new guys. Uh, forget about just Aaron Rodgers. But and, and when a football team especially does that, it doesn't usually translate that way well into ultimate team success because there's so many different moving parts it's going to take them time i think for them to get to where they eventually want to be by mid-season probably a different story but the first few weeks i think it's going to be a bit of a learning curve you look at miami they're going to go as far as Tua Tagovailoa brings them if he's healthy then okay they'll they'll be they'll be quite well they've improved on defense they have some good weapons on offense and then, you know, New England is is kind of a big wild card because we don't know, you know, the progress of Mac Jones and, and whether Bill Belichick has finally figured out how to run an offense. But if if you're a Bills fan, I would be supremely confident. Here's a team that won, what, 13 games last year. They're incredible at home. They have, I think, an even better defense this year than last year. Uh, you know, Josh Allen at quarterback, I think, is one of the best in the league. I, 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 there's no way I'm picking Miami or the Jets to beat the Bills for first place in the AFC East. I'm not going to say I would be entirely shocked if one of those two teams did, but if both of them did, 
wow, something will have dramatically gone wrong in Buffalo for that to happen. Yeah, Josh Allen has been hurt. Uh, you know, exactly. Yeah. That that really, I think, would be the, the thing. All right, you mentioned Aaron Rodgers. Uh, he is now, uh, I think he's joining the Rolling Stones. He's in their same age bracket. Um, <laughs> yes. He has dinner at four o'clock at Shady Pines with, uh, with Mick and the gang every day. Uh, can Aaron Rodgers, do you think, move to a new team? Is, is that a, a, an advantage or a disadvantage to move to a new team, a new system, a new everything else, and it's going to refresh him? Or when you've been used to the same thing for so long, even though he wasn't necessarily happy in the later years in Green Bay, is it going to be a tough adjustment to go to a new team and do that? Well, there's two, I think, recent examples of superstar quarterbacks who have been with a team for a long time and then moving to another team and having different degrees of success. Number one, Brett Favre, who went from Green Bay to, uh, I believe it was the Jets, and then he went to Minnesota after that. And you know, it, it was okay for him. It's he certainly never got to where he was with the, with the Packers than he did with the Jets in, in Minnesota. He, you know, played some playoff games, had some success. Um, but the other one would be Tom Brady, who for twenty whatever years it was was with uh, New England, and obviously, as we know, had a tremendous amount of success. And then when he went to Tampa Bay, especially in the first year, all the way to the Super Bowl, winning the Super Bowl at home, the first team to do that ever in, in NFL history. Now, mind you, the the ensuing. You know, a year after that, uh, it didn't go so well. But when you're a quarterback, and I think uh, of Aaron Rodgers' ilk, he's going to bring you know a certain amount of swagger, a certain amount of confidence to that team. But when it comes to the X's and O's, he needs his teammates to help him out. So whether it's Alan Lazard, who's come over from uh, Green Bay, his good old friend Randall Cobb, also from the Packers, having Dalvin Cook, uh, you know, that sustainable kind of consistent explosive threat in the backfield. That's those are all pluses. But you still have to execute on game day. And if they're not on the same page, no matter what you've done, you know, for, for 16, 17, 18 years in Green Bay, you're on a, an entirely new team with an entirely new terminology, with an entirely new playbook. And, um, it, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how he makes it work. Yeah, it, it will be. I mean, it's it's a to me, that's a complete wild card. What he does, I mean, he's still clearly got the skills, but it's a complete wild card. You mentioned Tom Brady. I know he's not in the league anymore, so it seems odd to bring him up. Although, was it? Didn't Tom Brady have a contract with Fox that he, as soon as he retired, he was getting paid like $30 million a year or some stupid amount to go in the broadcast booth? How, if you've got that kind of contract to work one day a week, how are you not in the broadcast booth making $30 million a year? <laughs> that, I have no idea, but I, I'll say this. I am just as I was so intrigued on how Wayne Gretzky would do in this kind of scenario, you know, being one of the all-time great hockey players, one of the all-time great football players. I'm really intrigued to see how he translates his excellence on the field, which is what he's known for, to what he does in the studio or in, in a stadium, if that is going to eventually be the case. I don't think he's going to be nearly as good as a broadcaster as he was as a player, but who knows? He might surprise us. But yeah, that is a lot of money. I, and I don't know if that was the amount. It was some crazy, ridiculous amount they offered him. And, and I couldn't believe when he said, yeah, I'm going to take some time. I guess you, when you've got enough money that you can turn down that amount for just working <laughs> one day a week, you got a lot of money. Yeah. Um, hopefully, though, if he does get in, he is better than Tony Romo. I got to say, we're talking football. It's all types of There is no announcer who has gone in my mind from being, Hey, that's really cool to entirely insufferable as Tony Romo, whatever happened to the guy who called plays ahead of time and predicted them and was must see TV and then became, Oh, Tony Romo's calling this game. I could not agree with you more. I was 
it, it was a breath of fresh air when he first came on the scene and he was like, Hey, you know, they're going to run or they should run this. And you know, you see the play and then, they did. Kind of tra- and then they did. And then, and now it's just like, wow, like there's zero analysis coming here or, or, or very little or not to the degree that I think we're used to. And I've been terribly disappointed the last, the last season, especially there was too much, uh, you know, uh, gosh, uh, dang it. Kind of, you know, <laughs> uh, really kind of country boy kind of analysis where you can stick anywhere, anyone in that booth and they would come up with the same kind of thing. I mean, I, I want as a football kind of hardcore fan, I want to get into how this play transpired, who made the mistake, what should have happened, where could they have gone? And um, yeah, we're getting very, very little of that from Tony Romo. Do you think somebody in the NFL or somewhere in the somewhere told him enough with the predictions, you're somehow making this look bad or someone's got a problem with it? Because that that was I thought that was one of the most incredible things. Honestly, that that got him his contract. That was one of the most incredible things to watch this psychic ability almost. And then it's gone. And I almost wondered, did someone say you can't do that anymore? Teams are upset. Yeah, I you know from a network perspective, I don't think they were the first to say, "Hey, Tony, like don't don't spill the beans here." From a team perspective, maybe maybe they contact the network, say, "Hey, listen, you know, you're giving stuff away. The games are all splashed all over the stadium. Let's uh, you know put a lid on it." And and maybe that's the case. But from a fan perspective, man, that was so that was, was so great because I mean he was seeing everything that we were seeing and saying, "All right, this is going to happen," and then it and it happened. You mentioned uh, Patrick Mahomes a few minutes ago with the Chiefs. They're opening the season on Thursday. A really interesting twist now that they possibly are facing because we heard yesterday, I think, that Travis Kelsey, his all-pro tight end, has hyperextended his knee and is questionable. And, you know, if you've hyperextended your knee, I know these guys are tough. That could have an impact for some time. How impactful? Because I I look at Travis Kelsey as, I'm not going to say Patrick Mahomes is nothing without him. I'm not going to, that's ridiculous. But boy, is he ever an outlet valve. Anytime he's in trouble, hit Travis Kelsey and things go right. You take that away. I wonder what impact that's going to have. Well, it's going to have an impact. I mean, you talk about, uh, you know, the word safety net comes to mind, but here is probably the most explosive safety net in the history of the NFL, perhaps, because he's not only a guy who just seems to get open uh, or even when he's not open can still make the catch. Uh, the, you know, it's 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 Patrick Mahomes' comfort blanket. When all else fails, look for 87, and you're probably going to you know make a completion. So that's going to put pressure on rookies like Rasheed Rice, um, guys like Jawan Taylor uh, on that offensive line to make sure that no one's coming at uh, uh, Patrick Mahomes, so he can you know do what he does. But you know, Andy Reid and company in, in Kansas City are going to have to you know make a game plan that does not include Travis Kelsey, and that's. That's going to be tough because he is a major cog in the wheel. Here's a guy who has upwards of 100 catches a year, you know, double-digit touchdowns every year, one of the touchdown all-time touchdown leaders in, in the NFL playoffs. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure Detroit is kind of smiling because they don't have to deal with them, but uh, I'm, I'm sure Patrick Mahomes and the gang and KC are, are uh, conjuring up a game plan that uh, that works for them and gets a W for them. We'll see. I mentioned a couple of minutes ago that predictions, everybody's got predictions. We're not going to do predictions here. I'm not going to ask you who you've got for the Super Bowl. That's, you know, honestly, between you and I, nobody cares uh, about what we have to say anyway. Yeah. But who, who do you have right now as the most likely team to surprise us? And what team has become the least relevant in the entire NFL? 
Ooh, maybe I'll start with the last one. Least relevant in the NFL, I think, at least for this season. Which could probably... mean worst, which could mean worst or could just mean, you know what? I don't even remember they're in the league half the time. Yeah, to, to me, <laughs> and I hate to say this, but to me, it's the Arizona Cardinals because this is a team that I think they've been to one Super Bowl and they ended up losing to Pittsburgh. Um, but they're in for a world of hurt this year. I mean, you talk about <laughs> stinkers. This this could be the first ever, because now they play 17 games. This could be the first 0-17 team. Now, they probably win one or two or maybe even three games. But, my gosh, they're they're going to be at the bottom of the barrel. Whenever I think of the NFL, I'm like, oh, yeah, there's a team in Arizona. Um, in terms of biggest surprises, you know, there's a lot of teams you can throw in this boat and I'm not sure they would qualify for, you know, surprise team because they are think, you know, when you think of the NFL, you think of one of the, this team is being one of the best of all time or always kind of in the mix. And that's the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, you know, Mike Tomlin has never had a losing record that I think they were nine and eight last year. That's impressive. It's unbelievable. I mean, and this is a franchise that I think has had three head coaches in the last 40 or 50, whatever years, you know, Bill Cowher, Chuck Knoll, and, and Mike Tomlin. It's it's incredible. Um, but in terms of surprise, this team, I think, could surprise in terms of the number of wins they get. Um, if if they are firing on all cylinders and they're getting, you know, their, their great quarterback play, uh, it's just a team that has an amazing defense and I think could easily, I mean, well, they, they had subpar quarterback play last year and they almost got to nine or almost got to 10 wins. I think this year they could easily get double digits and maybe, maybe surprise with a division win. And that's saying a lot with Cincinnati and, and Baltimore in that division. So I think Pittsburgh would be my surprise team if they go on to win 12 or 13 games. I'll leave that to you. That last part, the first part about the team that's the least relevant. It's funny because I was going to say Washington, Okay. The, the commanders and maybe it's just because they've changed their name and I still think it sounds goofy and yeah. they could have come up with something better, but ironic that Arizona plays Washington in the first game this year. <laughs> there, there's going to be a humdinger ratings wise that, uh, that everyone's going to be tuning in to watch that one. Um, well, listen, Thursday night, uh, Detroit and Kansas city followed by a million games. And then uh, Monday night, the bills and the jets and, uh, Away we go. And as I say it right off the top, for long-suffering Ticat fans who flooded the fifth quarter and Rick's ear the other night after Labor mm-hmm. Day, you know, uh, maybe a drop of cold water on a parched tongue. Who knows the way uh, the way this season has gone. <laughs> There's still hope, but uh, maybe. Rick Zamper, I always appreciate you doing this. Thanks for talking football today. You got it. Anytime. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening. 911.